0: Here's a question. Does every human being deserve to have love in their life? The American prison system, through its policies, often answers that question with a no. But the human need for companionship, affection, and care runs deep. And every year, some of the roughly 2 million people behind bars fall in love with people on the outside and the way that the prisons treat these bonds says a lot about the state of mass incarceration. Brooklyn writer, Elizabeth Greenwood, spent five years reporting on romantic relationships among inmates. And she's learned a lot about the criminal justice system.
1: I also learned so much about love and so much about human ingenuity, innovation,
0: the instinct, We have to survive and to flourish. Elizabeth Greenwood is the author of Love Lockdown, Dating, Sex, and Marriage in American Prisons. And she's our guest today on Lean Out. Liz, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you so much for having me. So great to get to speak with you today. I found the book just so engrossing. I picked it up and I could not put it down.
1: Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. That is the greatest compliment a writer can receive, so thank you.
0: <laughs> it's very good storytelling. I want to start today. Now, you have a friend, a former hedge fund manager, Sam Israel, who absconded with half a billion dollars and is now incarcerated. I want to know how did that friendship come about and how did it spark an interest in love in the prisons?
1: Yeah, So I started corresponding with Sam Israel when I was researching and reporting my first book, Playing Dead, A Journey Through the World of Death Fraud. And that is about people who have faked their own deaths to varying degrees of success and about the whole kind of disappearance and fraud industry around it. So Sam very famously staged his own suicide In 2008, after kind of being revealed as one of the biggest Ponzi schemers in American history, up until Bernie Madoff's crimes came out just a few months later, he was the biggest Ponzi scheme. There's a great book about his whole story called Octopus by Guy Lawson that I highly recommend. It's actually much more complicated Than it sounds on its outset. In any event, I corresponded with Sam to ask him about his experiences having faked his death. And we conducted most of our correspondence via CoreLynx, which is one of many third-party email applications that certain prisons utilize. So, you know, I asked Sam about his experience faking his death. We talked about that. And then our correspondence really grew into a kind of friendship. I still talk to him very frequently. It's one of the most bizarre friendships of my life, also one of the most satisfying. So, you know, long after I had asked him about all the death fraud stuff, we'd talk about this and that. And he would occasionally mention to me that people would hear about his story, usually via some tawdry news tabloid program, like American greed or something. And people, usually women would write to him and they wanted to meet him, get to know him. And I just found that so interesting because of course, you know, I've heard about this before. We usually think of the more kind of high profile serial killers and how they have groupies and, you know, this kind of like lurid, train wreck kind of vision of what that's about. But here's Sam. He still has a long sentence left. He's not even that famous. And I just was so curious about what that was about. So I started looking into this. I started speaking to some of the women who'd written him and of course, what I found was that this is much more complex, much more complicated, and much more really understandable as an impulse when you get to know people and hear their whole stories and, and think about the context they're living in.
0: The stories are just so powerful, as as I mentioned. Introduce us to Crystal and Fernando and the broad strokes of their story.
1: Crystal and Fernando are a couple who met in the early 90s and they were both very young at the time. Crystal was 18. Fernando was in his early 20s 21, 22. Fernando Bermudez is a Dominican American man. He was living in the Washington Heights neighborhood of New York City at the time and he was picked up and ended up being wrongly convicted for a nightclub murder that took place in 1991. So this story at the time made national news, partly due to the fact that Fernando's family was lobbying so vocally about their son's innocence, which was very real. You know, he had an alibi that put him 10 miles away from the crime when it happened. And upon a closer look, which didn't happen for 18 years, unfortunately, which he served this wrongful conviction in maximum securities prisons in New York, you know, of course, there was a lot of procedural problems with the way he was picked up. This is all to say, in the early 90s, Fernando was serving time on Rikers Island, the jail in New York City while he was awaiting trial. Crystal was living a very kind of cloistered, sheltered life in Oklahoma as a young woman. She saw his story on the news. She saw his father on the nightly news proclaiming his son's innocence. And the way she describes it, something about Fernando's father and his story just pierced her heart. And she knew she had to write to this person and talk to him. And Crystal's very religious. She wanted to tell him about the Lord and all this. So, you know, this was back in the 90s. Like, there was no coral inks. There were not the ways we can interact with people who are incarcerated today. So she was really thumbing through phone books, looking up the number for Rikers. Finally, through some some workings on her own, got the address for the jail and sent him a letter. And from there, they corresponded. She came to New York and met him. And because they got married while Fernando was still on Rikers, I believe, or very early into his false imprisonment. And because New York is one of only four states in the United States that allows for conjugal visits, once they were legally married, they were able to have a few weekends about every six weeks where they could spend time in privacy. And they ended up having a family. They had three children who were conceived on prison property. During that 18 years, Fernando and Crystal were both fighting for Fernando's freedom. And he was eventually released. He received a settlement from the state of New York for his wrongful conviction. The couple is still together. They are grandparents. They now live in North Carolina. And even though Fernando was wrongfully convicted, he still spent 18 years in prison and he came out with all of the PTSD and challenges that anyone in that environment would. So they got their happy ending, thank God, but it's also still been a challenge for them readjusting and dealing with the mental health issues they both sustained having been in the system for that long.
0: I want to come back to conjugal visits because I think that's such an important piece. But first, I mean, this book really smashes the stereotypes about these types of relationships. And one of those stereotypes is that these women are desperate. Another one is that they hold all the control in the relationship. I was so surprised to see how much waiting around by the phone there was for these women. Talk to me a little bit about that. That was something that was also very surprising to me
1: because of course we think that the person in the free world, in society, has all the power. They have access to finances in a way that incarcerated people don't and on and on. But it turns out (laughs) that in order to have a relationship with someone in prison, visits don't happen all that often. And a lot of kind of day-to-day you know, affection and correspondence and communication of a relationship with someone in prison really happens through phone calls, through letter writing, through email correspondence. If you are incarcerated in a facility that has those sorts of resources, so it turns out that the person in the free world is really at the whim of the prison system, you can't just call up a prison and say, I want to speak to my husband. They have to call you, you know, at certain times when that's available. And those times can change on a dime due to different institutional upheaval, which sometimes does seem to be very random and capricious. So there's very little control that the outside partner has. They find themselves waiting by the phone and sometimes like structuring their whole day around that phone call. Because again, when you only get to talk to someone, your husband, your boyfriend, your beloved 15 minutes a day, those are the most important 15 minutes in a lot of these women's lives. And until they get that phone call, they're kind of holding their breath, you know, for a number of different reasons, people in prison are in a perilous situation. There can be fights, lockdowns. You don't know what's going on. So that power asymmetry was really interesting
0: to me. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned letter writing and that really emerged as an interesting theme. I know at this point you probably have files and files of letters. I do.
1: I do. I, I treasure them. They're really, really special to me.
0: What are the benefits of that mode of communication? The world we live in today is so
1: fast. It's so, you know, our attention spans are like the Time that a TikTok video takes to play, right? And, you know, we finish a show on Netflix, the next one comes up immediately. I mean, there's just so much speed and stimuli in all of our lives. And then when it comes to dating, that same phenomenon is really mirrored in the sense of, you know, swiping through people like a pack of playing cards on the different apps. And just the whole kind of culture of dating feels so, so fast. It feels so disposable in a lot of ways. In a prison relationship, everything is really slowed down. Of course, slower than people would want, probably, like had they (laughs) had their druthers. But just because of the structure of prison and what's available it's a very slow correspondence that people take to get to know each other. So when it comes to couples who met while incarcerated, which is the type of couples I looked at, so people who did not know each other prior to one person being in prison, people meet often through pen pal sites, and a lot of that getting to know you takes place through the course of letter writing. So It's so uncommon for us these days to do anything in longhand, let alone get to know someone through the very old school process of writing. And people describe this process of letter writing to me as so intimate. And, you know, again, one of the stereotypes about prison relationships is that they are safe. You know, you don't have to really put yourself out there to get hurt in the way you might in a free world relationship. But what a lot of people told me time and again was that through letter writing and through this container, they would make themselves so vulnerable and disclose things in these letters that they'd never told anyone. So the letter writing was really an important indisposable part of getting to know one another when it came to the couples and really just old fashioned, really courtly, really, really at odds with a lot of what we experience living in the world we do.
0: Mm. And with the pen pal programs, I mean, I thought that was so interesting in and of itself, but also these are really important to the prisoners because it's public when you get mail. And so it's an indication that people on the outside care about you. And so for predators in the prison, whether that's guards or other prisoners, it's a really important indication. I thought that piece was really interesting. That was so interesting to me too, that letter
1: writing in and of itself is a very effective harm reduction tool. So, as you said, mail call usually happens in front of other people in the prison, prison staff, other people who are incarcerated. And if you hear your name called frequently, that means you have someone in the free world on the outside who is looking out for you, who cares for you. And that really sends a message and creates a veil of protection among the prison. And then, of course, for the person who's incarcerated themselves, that connection to the outside world is just invaluable. I think a lot of people who are behind bars really feel that they have been forgotten about. And, you know, at least in the United States, that cruelty is by design. We really lock these people away in remote parts of states and they have very little interaction with society at large. So if you do care about reducing mass incarceration, there are a number of great organizations that do pair free world people with incarcerated people. One that I really recommend is called Black and Pink, and that pairs free world people with LGBTQIA people behind bars. They are far and away among the most vulnerable population who's incarcerated. So yeah, sending a letter can really change a prisoner's day. It can change your life. You might fall in love, but in any event, it really is a very powerful harm reduction tool.
0: Mm. And so are the, the conjugal visits, the family visits. Talk to me a little bit about that and why you think it's so important that it's extended beyond these states that do it right now.
1: Conjugal visits is really a misnomer in a lot of ways for what these visits are. I think that we have the image in our mind of this just being for sexual trysts. Conjugal visits, better known as family visits, family reunification program in some states, they are private visits for immediate family. So that's not just your romantic partner, that is your children, your parents, your siblings. So every piece of research that has been done around not just family visits but any kind of visit shows that these visits help improve outcomes in the prison in terms of safety it reduces prison sexual assaults and it also really improves outcomes for people when they come home and re-enter society To have that little bit of normalcy woven in, you know, to be able to just cook a meal with your children and maintain those bonds, it's hugely important. In the United States, it is hugely politically unpopular. People say, well, why are my tax dollars going to giving these murderers time and luxuries and on and on? You know, the United States is so backward in a lot of ways, but namely in this way, I mean family visits are considered a right for prisoners in countries, India, Mexico, Canada, of course. So we're really behind the times in that way. And I mean, the positive outcomes, I mean, it really outweighs the cost in dollars, I think, in the long-term gains that prisoners getting a sense of normalcy, humanity, connection with families, you know, if we do say that this is a rehabilitative program, which, you know, is arguable, this is what we want to be doing. These are the kind of programs and measures we want to be instituting.
0: Speaking of Canada, one of the disturbing stories in the book had to do with a Canadian who may have used a prisoner marriage in order to get citizenship in the U.S. Tell us about that. That's one of the big questions
1: (laughs) of the book. In my research, I found, you know, I still feel on the fence about whether that was the case or not. But basically, I wanted to really try to get inside this phenomenon of couples who met while incarcerated kind of as holistically as it was possible to do. So what I came across most frequently was that it would be male partners who were incarcerated and female partners who were outside in the free world. In the United States, 93% of the prison population is male. But of course, there's 7% who are female prisoners. And I wanted to know how different was the experience of being a prison wife versus a prison husband. And that's the kind of nomenclature that the romantic partners of people in prison use themselves. I wanted to know about that. So in doing that, I met a really incredible couple Eva de Molina and her husband at the time, a fellow who I call Jacques in the book, who was European guy, lived in Europe, was from Canada. He met Eva on a pen pal site. They met in person, they had a whirlwind courtship. She is still imprisoned in New York state. So they had conjugal visits. They got married to have those conjugal visits. In doing so, Jacques was able to after a few years, get his citizenship, at which time he rather unceremoniously broke up with EVA. So this led to a lot of questions. Did he marry her just to obtain his citizenship? As he said to me, and which I do tend to believe, you know i'm a big fan of 90 day fiance like there are a lot easier ways to if that is your long con there are easier ways to do that than marrying a prisoner i mean they were married for five or six years he did make a great deal of sacrifices financially and you know fighting for her case and you know the sacrifices anyone anyone makes in being in a relationship with someone in prison So it's a big question mark. Did he do it for the citizenship? Did he not? I kind of land in an ambivalent place in the book, but it was a very interesting story.
0: Mm -hmm, Indeed. And one of the things I wondered about with you kind of going through this whole process, I mean, it took about five years to write. and Mm, Correct. And I'm thinking about you having to learn all the bureaucracy. So like one of the details that really stood out to me is you having to pack extra outfits because you might be declined entry based on what you're wearing. I mean, what was it like for you navigating this crazy bureaucracy?
1: Well, it was a big learning curve. I had interviewed people in jail, not in prison, prior to doing this book. In person. Of course, I interviewed Sam, he was in prison, but it was only through email. So there was a lot to learn. And, you know, there was a lot I could not have anticipated in the outset. Again, you say this book took five years. The big reason it took five years was because of the glacial pace of working within the prison system. So, for example, I would set up a reporting trip to go meet someone in a prison across the country and get the clearance for it, which could take months sometimes, get the approval, and then the trip would have to be canceled at the last minute because there was a lockdown. I would write to people. They sometimes would not receive my mail for weeks at a time, months at a time, due to you know, whatever is happening at the prison. But things that I experienced are really nothing compared to what the majority women who live this life go through. And I just found that some of my experiences mirrored a lot of what I was hearing about. So for example, the outfits, the visit outfit is such a big deal that prison wives would tell me about. Online and in person, they exchange tips and tricks for how you can create a cute visit look <laughs> when <laughs> there are some really strict and very random dress codes. You know, there's even some Instagram accounts for prison wives called like Visit Drip for like, you know, outfit suggestions for what you can wear and get away with. And, and the stress that these they have, the backup outfit to the backup outfit of the backup outfit. And, you know, making sure that you have the right quarters to get snacks at the vending machine. Will I be able to get through security or will the guard working that day be in a bad mood? You know, all these unknowns. And I found myself that before I would go to a prison the night before, I could never sleep because I also had all those questions running through my mind. Prison wives would always tell me I never Sleep the night before a prison visit, and I I felt that firsthand. And I think that that insidious kind of self surveillance again, that's by design. Mm. You are stigmatized as a person going into a prison, even as a visitor. So I experienced some of that firsthand. Again, it's nothing compared to what so many of these women live every day.
0: It's so interesting, and you know the cruelty of the system really stood out. The Suffering stood out. Mm -hmm. The Humanity stood out. The fact that people go to such great lengths to pursue these emotional bonds in a system that is really designed to take those bonds apart. Can we spend a moment and just talk about the big picture here? I mean, reading it, there are more than 2 million people incarcerated in the States right now. When you kind of sit back and think about the experience of this reporting this out for five years, like what is wrong with the United States that there are two million people behind bars? How like, much time do you have? I mean,
1: <laughs> how long is this interview? Like, I could go on. You know, it's funny when I talk about this, something that a lot of people bring to me is, oh, it's the private for-profit prisons. That's obviously a huge problem, but it's such a small part of the problem. I think that you have to look at the whole system of prison in the United States from such a broad bird's eye view. You know, just for one small example is that the way the places in which prisons are often built and located in the United States is that they are out in the middle of absolute nowhere. And why is that? That gives people in rural places jobs being employed at the prison. So in that way, it becomes very politically popular for local politicians to get a prison in their jurisdiction. And the jobs at these prisons pay more than what most high school diploma jobs could ever get you, you know, and they have great benefits for those people. And of course, there's a huge racial dynamics that I, I'll never forget. I was at a prison in far flung Colorado, like in the middle of nowhere, almost at the Nebraska border. And I happened to be in the reception area during a shift change. And everyone I had been at a visit that morning and I was waiting for a prison wife to come out of her visit. She could have some privacy with her husband without me asking my uh, nosy questions. So I was waiting there and all the people I'd seen who were incarcerated themselves that morning were vast majority black and brown men. And almost all of the people who were coming into their shift were all white. And they were, you know, being, they have to go through security for themselves and have their belongings looked at. That takes about two seconds and it's your colleague doing it. And of course we know, you know, so many studies have shown that, the vast majority of contraband, whether it's cell phones or drugs come in through prison staff themselves. It was just a very stark moment of like, oh, wow, (laughs) you know, and there's a great book about prison staff by Ted Conover called New Jack, where he himself worked as a prison guard at Sing Sing in New York for a few years. You know, that economic imperative is just one tiny part of this big picture of why prisons seem, you know, as American as apple pie, unfortunately.
0: Mm. And in 2020, I mean, we saw this huge outpouring of activism after the murder of George Floyd. This real focus and grassroots resistance against systemic racism, the prison system seems the most obvious example of that. Has anything changed?
1: Not nearly enough, I would say. I mean, there are measures happening. I'm thinking particularly in California, where in the past few years, people with life serving life sentences now can experience conjugal visits when before they couldn't. You know, we've seen the decriminalization of marijuana on state levels. So there are little things here and there, but I think till you kind of look at the effect of prisons from this financial imperative, the amount of money that go into prisons, you know, the amount of jobs they produce. I'm not sure that the kind of systemic overhauls we hope to see will happen. I mean, again, there are these hopeful pockets of change, but they really are just more Band-Aid measures, I would say, than to the big picture and problem of mass incarceration. Mm
0: -hmm. And just lastly, Liz, you've kept the focus very much on your subjects in the book, but I'm just curious just to close about your own personal experience. I mean, in this five years, as you're reporting out this book, very heavy book to report, we've also had a global pandemic. And in your personal life, you got married, you had two children. What has it been like for you navigating all of that? You should see a picture of me before all this versus now. It's
1: like, I feel like, you know, the pictures you see of the presidents, you know, day one in office <laughs> and then when they leave, it's kind of similar. So I think I learned, of course, so much about the entrenched racism of this country that is its backbone. I also learned so much about love and so much about human ingenuity, innovation, the instinct we have to survive and to flourish. And I saw that both within people behind bars and within, you know, mostly the women I profiled who formed communities and friendships among themselves. And, you know, the really interesting thing I saw, which I really could not have imagined from the outset, was the way in which Going through these relationships really built a sense of confidence in the women themselves. And that sounds crazy, but I'll tell you why. You know, many of the people I interviewed had never had any connection to prison prior to becoming involved with their partner. So this world was so new to them and they had to learn so much so fast. And a big part of what they had to learn was how to deal with judgment and stigma from friends and family and say, girl, what are you doing? Why are you with someone in prison? So really advocating for themselves and standing up and having to really think, okay, well, this is what I want. And this might not look like your happy ending, but it's mine. From that and from the relationships that between other prison wives and women that found each other. In these similar situations and the kind of emotional intimacy they could share among each other. Just this immense sense of purpose and drive and self esteem that I saw reflected in like women going back to school and women starting their own businesses. And that was just so impressive and interesting to me. And I saw time and again, this is such a bleak world when you're talking about the prison system. But I saw so much how these women also have like the most incredible sense of humor about the predicament about themselves. And there were so many times where I would be in an interview and I'd go from like crying to hysterically laughing the next moment. And that was just so impressive and beautiful to me. And I really wanted to reflect that in the book because the truth of the matter was this was not all doom and gloom. This was also people falling in love. This was people finding a voice. This was people really coming into themselves in this extraordinary way. And I found that just so inspiring. And I still keep in touch with the vast majority of people from the book. And, you know, their lives have taken them in incredible directions they could have never imagined. And they have no regrets about any of it. So that has just been like hugely inspiring to me.
0: Mm. Well, it is an incredible book. It was a great pleasure to get to speak with you about it. Thank you so much for coming on today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.